Welcome to Revelation Bible Study. We are in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, and we are on verse 7. But before we get started this evening, we are going to go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Lord, we ask that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message. Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth, no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. The sixth church, Philadelphia, we're almost through. we got one more after tonight. The sixth church, Philadelphia, is one of the two that receives no rebuke. The church of Smyrna was the other one. Philadelphia was located 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was known for agriculture, but was destroyed many times by earthquakes. Now known as Allah Shahar, meaning high city, Philadelphia is named for a king of Pergamum, Atalus Philadelphus, which is close to the Greek word of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. This is the word that Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is named after. The Greek word Philadelphia used seven times in the scriptures. Romans 12 and 10 says, Be kindly, affectionate, one to another, with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. First Thessalonians 4 and 9 says, But as touching brotherly love, love ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Hebrews 13 and 1 says, let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1 and 22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. In 2 Peter 1 and 7, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Revelation 3 and 7. And to the angel in the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. He that hath this key to the city of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. Brotherly love, something the world needs a lot more of here these days. We seem to have forgotten that we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Instead, we're trying to get ahead at any cost. Christ in this verse 3 and 7 said, describes himself as he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And since he that is speaking is holy, from 1 Peter 1 and 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. He can rightly judge the individual members and the church. 
He holds the key of David, or the way we would say it now is the key to David's throne and kingdom. Whoever has the key to open the lock controls who goes through the door and who does not. Isaiah 9 and 7 states, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be, in, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He says, I've got the key, David's throne. I will allow whom I want to into the throne room. I will keep out who I want to out of the throne room. But it's not his, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here this evening, He's not a random individual, and he is no respecter of person. So he's not going to withhold the throne from someone who doesn't dress right or look right or act right or is, you've just got to be right. If you're right inside, all the others will come out. You'll start with the inside. You know, we, we start cleaning up our house on the inside. Well, he starts cleaning up our house, our temple, on the inside. And as he cleans up the temple, the outside cleans up as well. From the New Testament, Luke 1 and 32 says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He's got the throne. No wonder he has the key. It's his. It is his to withhold. It is his to open. And he's not going to withhold it to anyone who has accepted what he did for them on the cross of Calvary. That's, if you'll pardon the expression, that's the key. You've got to, you have got to accept what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary, what he did for you on the cross of Calvary, what he did for me on the cross of Calvary for us to be allowed into the throne room because he has the key. It is his throne room. He can keep out whomever he wishes. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father except by him. There may be many ways to get to your house. Several roads you can get there. Depending on which way you're going. However, there is one driveway and one front door to get you not only in the yard, but also into the house. If you, know, if you do not go in the driveway, walk through the front door, you will not enter the house. Christ is the door through which you must go to have access to the Father. There's a lot of religions right now claiming to be the road, the way. And there are individuals out there that say there's many ways to get there. Well, there may be many ways to get to the gate. I'm not going to say that there isn't. I'm not going to say there isn't. But I'm going to say on authority of God's word, there's only one way to get through the gate. And that's to go through the gate. You can't go around it. You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You have to go through it. The gatekeeper is Jesus. You've got to go through him.
Christ is the door through which you must go to have access to the Father. Any other way, and you will not get to enter. He also stands guard or watch at our door, our heart, to protect us from the devices of Satan. In John 7 through 9, or John 10, 7 through 9, he describes him as himself as the door or the gate. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He's the gatekeeper. He's the door. He's the opening. He's our only way. As I said, you might be able to get there many, many ways, and I'm not going to argue that point. But I will, on the authority of God's word, tell you that there is only one way through that gate, and that is Jesus Christ. If he shuts the door, just as he did on the ark of Noah, no one can enter. But if he opens the door, no one will be able to shut or close it. In Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16, And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. God shut that door, not Noah. They didn't tie the elephants to the door and pull it closed. God shut that door. And he did it for a reason. He did it so that no one could enter in after that point. You see, Noah was a, a right man, a just man, a good man. Probably had a heart, as we would say, as big as Texas. So when the rain started and the waters rose and people started beating on the door, Noah would have probably opened the door. But he couldn't open the door because God shut it. God did not shut the door to keep Noah from opening it, though. God shut the door that future generations would understand that there are consequences for their actions and consequences for their inactions. If Noah could have opened the door, he would have. This would not have put the ark in any danger. God was looking after them, sure, but the ark would remain floating. No, God shut the door so no one could open it to prove a lesson that he is sovereign. Oh, and you think, well, that's just cruel. He's killed all of these people. No, they did it to themselves. If you put a loaded gun to your head and you pull the trigger... God didn't do that. Neither did Satan. You did it. It's time that we stand and we are accountable for our actions and for our inactions, no matter what they are. None of us are perfect. The Bible tells us that all have come short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect, but we give the devil too much credit in our lives. Well, Satan made me do it. No. He can't make you do it. That's the key. He can't. You do it because you want to do it for whatever reason. But he shut this door so people would understand. Hmm. God spoke and I didn't listen. Now here I am. Verse 8. 
I know thy works. Behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. God tells the church of Philadelphia that he sees them, and he is proud of them. Even though, you know, pride cometh before the fall, that's not the pride that we're talking about. The church, though small and weak, they're holding on. As my father-in-law would say, they got to the end of the rope, they tied a knot, and they hung on even further. They are holding on to his hand and allowing him to lead in God. Even though their faith is small, their strength is little, they trust God in everything, especially in the keeping of the gospel. God has opened the window of heaven, and he will bless them in a mighty and special way. Malachi 3 and verse 10 says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Side note, tithing is not just money. It's time, it's energy, it's talents. But if he's got you, he's got all of that. So many people get hung up on, oh my gosh, God's wanting 10%. No, God wants 100%. He wants a 100% of you. But if you'll give him 100% of you, the 10% of your finances won't matter. Behold, verse 9, I will make them of synagogue, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Psalms 23 and 5, he says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. The hypocritical Christians and those that profess to be Jews, but are not, are going to be made to come and bow before the Christian church, Philadelphia. God will make those enemies of this church a footstool. From henceforth, from Hebrews 10 and 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. We don't serve God to have our enemies to come and bow and worship us. Mm -hmm. We don't serve God for anyone to worship us. We're not worthy of that worship. It doesn't seem fair sometimes how Christians struggle here and the ungodly, they're making tons and tons and tons of money. They don't seem to have any problems. They don't have to, they don't seem to have any issues. But this is the closest thing to heaven that they'll ever get to if they do not accept Christ. Their reward is what they've got. If they have never accepted Christ, they will not make it to heaven. This is all they've got. The Christians, the true Christians, I was told one time from an individual, and I won't say who it was, but he looked at me and said, churches are full of hypocrites. My words was, well, praise God. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you apparently didn't hear what I said. I said that all churches was full of hypocrites and I went, praise God. Well, why are you praising God? I said, because that's where they need to be. 
That's where you need to be. We see that there are people in this verse and in this church and around this church that profess something that they were not. You know, if you're if you're going to be a sinner, be a sinner. If you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. Don't be the wishy-washy, backwards and forth. A friend of mine I used to work with, he off, he would sell and introduce himself to people as, well, I'm a struggling sinner. He recognized that he was sinning, but he wasn't ready to give it to God. He recognized. He didn't put on no airs. He recognized it. That's where we need to get. Where are we? Where are we walking? What are we doing? Are we truly Christians or are we just Christians on Sunday only? Isaiah 45 and verse 23 says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Romans 14 and 11, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Whether we're Christians or we're not Christians, we're going to bow to God. We're going to worship him like he should be worshiped. Whether we want to or not. Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, all enemies of God and all of the believers of God will bow and confess that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The difference is we will want to if we're Christians and the sinners will be made to and they will not want to, but they will to him. Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world. Try them that dwell upon the earth. Get ready. Here's a controversial scripture. The church of Philadelphia is told because they have kept the word of his patience, that God will keep them from the hour of temptation. God tells them that the church will not be there to be tempted. He will keep them from it. Let's look at it a little closer. In Revelation 6, we begin the study of tribulation. Going to Matthew 24, verses 21 through 24. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall come, say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible they should, they shall deceive the very elect. The very elect shall be deceived or could be deceived. This is the temptation that God will remove the Philadelphia church from and not allow it to be deceived. 
The controversy is, when will the scripture of Matthew take place? Will it be at the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? The tribulation is in halves. There's the front half and there's the back half. The first half, three and a half years, even though it is tribulation, it is not as bad as it could be. It will get worse as time allows and as time continues. The last half, the last three and a half years, will be very bad. The mid-tribulation rapture campus believes that it is the last three and a half years that God shields the church from, allowing them to go through the first half. The pre-tribulation rapture believes that the church will be raptured at the start of the tribulation, the first half, and we leave before it ever gets started. I will leave that up to you to decide for yourself. You can read one scripture and it can point you that it's a pre-tribulation. You can read another scripture and it can point you to a mid-tribulation. I'm sorry, I don't see any scriptures. I really, really have to dig to find this, but I don't see any scriptures that points, to me, that points me to the saying that we're going to be here through seven years of tribulation. I don't see it. If you know of it, please point it out to me. I would love to study it. I don't see that. I see either pre or mid. But here's my point. Why worry about it? Oh, it's in the Bible. We've got it. No, I'll hear what I'm saying. Why worry about it? Are you promised your next breath? Are you promised your next heartbeat? If God doesn't come back right this second, you might not live long enough to see the rapture. Are you ready to go now? Well, I'm a young person. I, I, I'm not going to die young. You can't make that statement. A good friend of mine passed away in his 20s. His heart just literally exploded, they said. Another good friend of mine who was 19 years old was going home from work and uh, head-on collusion took him out. We get called up on when the rapture is going to take place. Yes, the rapture will take place. Even though the word rapture is not in the scriptures anywhere, that is what we have called the twinkling of an eye. The dead shall rise first. And then in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those that remain shall be called up. That's the rapture. That's loosely the definition of rapture. No, the word doesn't show in the scriptures, but that's what it means. But are you going to be here for the rapture? Why do we argue? Why do we fuss? Why do we quarrel with others about when the rapture is going to take place? You have got to be ready to go at a moment's notice. I'm standing in, I am standing in the church right now. I may not see my house. I may not make it to my house. If I've been so concerned and caught up about when the rapture is going to be, I've missed the whole point of being a Christian. See, I know people that are, oh, they that's all they want to talk about is rapture, rapture, rapture. Okay, it's great, wonderful, talk about it. 
I don't take anything away from it. But let's not get so caught up in it that it causes arguments and division in the church. Let's sit down, debate it if you wish. You tell me your side, I'll tell you my side. We're not to know when the rapture is to take place until it gets here. He wrote Revelation in such a fashion and in such a way that we are not to know beforehand. There are a few things that we can know without a shadow of a doubt. There are seven Beatitudes, seven blessings in, in the book, in the Revelation. We can know those. But we don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know who the false prophet is. We don't know when the rapture is going to take place. We don't even know when the tribulation is going to start. But if you go back to Matthew 24 and you start looking at it closely a little bit further up than, than uh, 21 and 24, you'll see that he says in there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquake in diverse places. Be not troubled. This is not the end. These are the days of sorrow. Other Bible translations gives it as these are the beginning of birth pangs. Those ladies that's given birth, you know what, what it's talking about. As you get closer to the delivery of your baby, your contractions are stronger and harder and faster and longer. That's what we're experiencing right now in the world. A, a momentous occasion. This is the greatest time. This is the most interesting time in the history of the world. We're living it. We're seeing it. But we're there in the days of sorrow. I truly believe that. You don't have to look too far to hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places. You don't have to look for pestilence and famines and droughts and floods. Guess what? That's happening all in America. If you start in California, you got a drought. In Kentucky, you got a flood. We're still supposedly under this pandemic, supposedly under this, you know, COVID. And I'm not saying it's not real. It is very much real. I think it was politicized, but that's another story. So we've got the pandemic. We've got the pestilence. we got the floods. we got the drought. Hurricane season started. We'll have bad storms on the coast, Florida, up the Gulf Coast, up in Louisiana. Very possible. We may even get hit with a hurricane here in Charlotte. We were once number of years ago, September, we had a class one or a category one hurricane in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're there. We're in the days of sorrow. But you're not promised tomorrow. So let's not focus so much on the rapture. Let's focus on what thus saith the Lord. Let's focus on talking and worshiping, but also witnessing and giving our testimony to those that are around us. Verse 11 says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Behold, I come quickly. Revelation 16 and 15 says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garment, lest he walk naked 
and they see his shame. If you knew somebody was going to break into your house tonight, would you go to bed? Or would you sit up? If you knew that somebody was going to break into your car, would you go to bed? Or would you sit up? You never know when that thief is going to come. You, you never know. You've just got to put your trust and your faith in God. And he's not saying that he's coming and he's going to steal. He's saying he's coming as a thief. Surprise! You never know when a thief's going to strike. So he's coming when you least expect him. I remember as a kid uh, hearing, well, the day that no one predicts that God's coming back, that'll be the day he comes. Well, guess what? There is no such day. Uh, there's somebody predicting God's going to come back every day of the year. And you get these people that are hung up on, well, Christmas is on a pagan holiday, and Sunday is a pagan holiday. Give me a day of the month. Give me a day of the week. Give me a day of the year that the pagans did not have a celebration one time or another. And I'll start worshiping on that day. But guess what? There is no such critter. They had festivals and feasts, and they had their false gods and their idols, and they worshiped them 365 days a year. Whether it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, they worshiped their false idols. We have to set aside a day. Some of us have set aside Sunday. Some of us have set aside Saturday. Who cares? Does it really matter what day of the week? No, it doesn't. What matters is our worship, our adoration towards God the Father. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When he comes, he will not pause. He will not hesitate. We must be ready to go always because we do not know when he will come back or we do not know when he will call us back. I often make the joke here that Chevrolet is not the only thing that recalls its creations. And people get mad at me, but we, we see car recalls all the time. God can recall us at any time he wants to. He made us. We're his creation. He may call us home first. In other words, we may die before the rapture takes place. So we will not have to wonder when the time of the rapture occurs. The second part of that says that no man take thy crown. I don't see a crown on my head. So what's, what's that scripture about? Every word in the Bible is important. Even the A's, the N's, and the D's. James 1 and 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to him that love him. Now, reading James 1 and 12, and let's look back into Revelation 3 and 11, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown, the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised. 
First Peter 5 and 4 says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The crown jewels of Britain. I've never seen them in person. I've only read about them, saw pictures of them. But they have to be under guard and key. They have to be under a lock. They have to be under security at all times. We are promised a crown of glory and the crown of life. Every Christian has that. No man can take it from you. Satan can't take it from you. God will not take it from you. But you can walk away from it. We each have a crown. But no man can take our crown unless we allow it to happen by giving it up. In Romans 8 and 38 and 39 it says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love but us. We can walk away. We can turn our back on Christ. We can turn our back on the word. We can turn our back on our prayer life. We can turn our back. We can walk away. We can live in sin and it'll be over. Or will it? We've each got a call on our life and that call never leaves us no matter what we do. That call will always be there. You can come back. You've not went too far. You have not strayed to the point where God can't find you. I think it was last week or maybe it was the week before I mentioned Daniel Boone saying they asked Daniel one time if he'd ever been lost. He said, no, but I've been mighty bewildered for three days. He got himself lost and he walked and he walked and he walked and he finally found himself out. We can't walk. We can't run. We can't climb the highest tree. We can't get on the top of the mountain and find our way out of this sin, the desert of sin that we are in. Only by looking to the cross of Calvary can we find that, if you will, that landmark, that lighthouse that can direct us back. You've not went too far. That light's still out there. He said he'd leave the 99 and come and find the one. I was that one at one time. I've been that one since. 1986, you've not went too far. Nothing can separate us from God's love unless we do it ourselves, and then we can always come back to him. Just as the prodigal son ran back to the father, well, let me restate that. The prodigal son came back to the father. The father ran to him. Have you ever noticed that? The prodigal son had went as far as he could go and he was hungry and he was tired and he smelled bad and he was filthy and he was nasty. And he said, even my father's servants eat better than this because he was eating the pig slop. I'm going to put it in Tennessee tonight. He was eating the pig slop. The father's servants eat better than this. So I'm going to go back home and I'm going to get a job working for my dad. So he starts down the road. And as he's coming down the road, his father's standing at the window looking. 
And he sees his son. And a father knows his son. A father knows his daughter. And the father runs out the front door, up the road, and just starts covering him with kisses. But he's dirty, he's smelly, he's nasty. But that was the most beautiful thing to that father's tired old eyes was to see mm-hmm. his son coming down the road. And he couldn't wait anymore. He had to run to him. Let me tell you, that was undignified for an older gentleman to run. But he ran to his son because he loved his son so much and he ran to his son to protect him. Because you see, back in that day, you had the ability to have the honor killings. The neighbors could have stoned that son to death because he had dishonored his father. But his father ran to his son to protect him and to bring him home. Our Heavenly Father, if you're, if you're not where you need to be, our Heavenly Father will run to you. All you got to do is turn around and say, Father, forgive me. Verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. A pillar of the community is recognizable for being an upstanding, right-living person. The pillar of the community is someone who keeps the law and is recognized by those around them as a good role model. Man, we need, we need good role models these days. The pillar in God's temple is the same. An overcomer will be recognized by the inhabitants of God's temple as such. An overcomer, a just and right individual. Revelations 2 and 17 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in that stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. Revelation 14 and 1 says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Revelation 19 and 12. His eyes were as flame as fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. We've got a new name. Now, years ago, we had an individual and loved this old boy. He was, he was a great friend of mine. I do miss him. He, he passed away a number of years ago, but he was in one of my Sunday school classes, and I made the mention. I, we must have been studying in Revelation. We must have been studying this verse because I made the mention that I didn't know what the Hebrew name for wimp would be, but that would be my new name. That individual went home and researched it, and I got a text later that night that showed me what the Hebrew name for wimp was. Couldn't pronounce it, but he did show it to me. We've got a new name. I don't know what it is. You don't know what your new name is, but God knows what your new name is. 
And remember, he changed people's names. Peter became the rock, Patra. We saw Jacob changed his name to Israel. We see him changing people's names because of what they stood for. He's going to change your name. You've got a new name. And you'll be given a stone. You'll be given that new name. That new name will be precious to you. I, I believe that there is something still about a person's name that should be honored. My dad, I was named after my, my dad. and My dad had a great name. It was up to me to keep it unspotted, unblemished. I am a firm believer that a family's name means something. But I'm also a firm believer that the name that God's going to give me is perfect. It will be exactly who I am and exactly what I represent. I have no clue what that will be. I don't think it will have much to do with patience, though. I'll just go ahead and tell you that because I don't believe I've got much patience. We will be identified with God and by God as a follower of his. You can even go as far as to say we will be named after God. The temple of God will be the new Jerusalem. It will come down from heaven and rest where we know Jerusalem is today. Are we a pillar of the community? Are we the salt of the earth? You know, he said to be the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, are we the salt of the earth? Verse 13. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Philadelphia is one of two churches without a rebuke. These churches in the face of opposition and persecution never took their eyes off of following God. Even though they did not have much in the way of earthly materials, they both were rich in God's blessings. Philadelphia did not have much faith, but the faith it had was placed on the right object, and that of God the Father. They may have little in worldly possessions and may have little in the eyes of the other churches, but what they lacked in earthly goods they made up for in God's blessings. And as always, we're going to describe a little bit more about the Church of Philadelphia. Church of Philadelphia had little strength, but what they had, they used it wisely. They had little influence and was probably looked down on by some of the bigger and more wealthier churches. However, God is not concerned on the size of the sanctuary. God wants to know what you have done for him lately. The city of Philadelphia was known for agriculture, mainly grapes, but it was also known for devastating earthquakes. The city of the centuries have been destroyed and rebuilt only to last a few hundred years be destroyed again. It was part of this devastation and the fact that it did not have easy access to a major highway, what we would consider a trade route, that kept it from being as prosperous as other churches. Because it was not rich in man's eyes, it, had, it held very little influence on others around it. Maybe because it wasn't on a major trade route, on what we would consider a highway. Maybe that's why it 
had to focus on God more because it had to depend on him. However, it was faithful and was very studious in God's word. It was this dedication to God and his word that impressed God. Oh, that's what I want to do. I want to impress God. Even though it held little influence, God did not rebuke this church as he had did the other ones except for Smyrna. Smyrna was the other one that didn't get a rebuke. The grapes that the land grew was made into wine so good that the Roman poet Virgil wrote about the wine. It had a point. It had poems written about it. It had ballads written about the wine. The city was near the river Cogmus. However, the earthquakes were so bad here that when Emperor Tiberius ruled, he allowed the city to be tax-free to aid its recovery from the earthquakes. It had been so devastated, it was so poor, that the emperor Tiberius said, eh, we don't need your money. Put it on rebuilding. The city was also known as Little Athens because of the many pagan temples that was in the city. Pagan worship of false gods was prominent in the city and surrounding countryside. The worship of pagan deities was always at opposition to the Christian churches. The members of the Church of Philadelphia in the environment that they worshipped in, was remarkable that they had kept their faith. Just as all the other churches before it, it faced opposition from just about everywhere. The Christians would be heckled or worse as they entered the church or exited the building. The pagan leaders saw the church as an affront to what they believed, and the Christians knew that the paganistic ritual and worship was of and to Satan. But in spite of the persecution, the church continued on for several more years. Even today, the ruins of some of the ancient buildings can be seen and found in the area. The city has been rebuilt and a small community still exists and still continues growing wine in this area. It's not as prominent as it was back when Revelation was written, but it is still an agricultural part of the, of the country. Join us next Thursday for the very last church. The one that everybody knows about and everybody talks about. But hopefully through this study, you've seen that, yes, the seven churches are the seven church ages, and we are living in the seventh age, but we are prominent throughout all of those churches. We can see churches today that fits this description of Philadelphia, of Sardis, of Pergamos, of Ephesus. We can find them all. We can find them all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity to worship, to praise, and to study your word. Lord, I ask that you'll move, that you'll touch on those that are here. Lord, that you'll touch on those that are watching. And Lord, that you'll move and stretch forth your hand. Lord, that you'll bless in a mighty and a special way that you will keep each and every one safe. And Lord, until we meet again, Lord, we ask that you'll stretch forth your hand on the revival that we have coming up here at the church this weekend. Lord, that you'll touch and that you'll anoint, Lord, the speaker as he endeavors to bring forth your message. Lord, that this church will be filled to the brim, not, Lord, to put people in the seats, but to be putting souls in the house. 
We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Next Thursday, we will finish the seventh church.